0: Hello and welcome to this edition of Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. My guest this week is Dylan Gilbertson, an up-and-coming creator and writer. Dylan is a fan of horror comics and is writing some horror comics. One he made a contribution to the If Anthology series which comes out once a year through Alternative Comics and its focus this year is horror comics and so Dylan has a piece in that book coming out in November and it taps into a fear I think we've all had at some point in our life, The Basement and the story is called, The Seller Calls My Name. And he also has another horror book coming out called, Sweetheart. Now Sweetheart, the first issue is available on his website and we're going to talk about that. And he also has a Kickstarter going on right now to fund issue number two. What the monsters in the story represent are type one and type two diabetes and that's what really caught my attention about Dylan's work. That to me is what made it unique and stood out from the pack. We learned about managing type one diabetes, and we discussed some of the misconceptions about diabetes. And you'll hear more of that conversation after our interview, after the closing credits of the show. So this week, I have some bonus content after the interview. So please stay tuned for that. Plus, there are my fun questions I ask all my guests. Dylan is an admirer of H.G. Wells' work, and we talk about that and some of the movies related to H.G. Wells' work and comics and the one thing that no one knows about Dylan that he would like to share with you. All that and more, here now on Creator Talks. Dylan, welcome to Creator Talks.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me.
0: Dylan, writing comics is not your day job but how you make a living is very interesting to me. You are a pulmonary sleep researcher. Tell me about that. So
1: I work at University of California, San Diego. Uh, I work in the pulmonary sleep department. Most of it is research-based, and so right now a lot of our studies focus on sleep apnea and different causes, different treatments, different endo and phenotypes that may or may not contribute to sleep apnea. So people who have COPD, whether or not that that gives you a higher likelihood to have obstructive sleep apnea and things like that. It's a, it's a very interesting job for sure.
0: How did you get interested in that kind of work?
1: My master's degree was originally in exercise physiology, which is, as you may be aware, is almost the opposite of sleep. And um, I originally got hired there because they were doing a study looking at exercise capacity in people that had obstructive sleep apnea and they needed somebody who really knew the ins and outs of running what's called a cardiopulmonary exercise test. So the example I always go to is that 50 Cent music video when he does it in the club and he's, and he's running on the treadmill and he's got the big face mask on and he's breathing through tubes and stuff. It's kind of one of those and they hired me on because they need somebody for that. And then uh, I got along with everybody that worked there and, and we seemed to really hit it off. So they cross-trained me on on sleep and taught me how to do EEG stuff. And then it all just kind of snowballed from there. And, and now here I am.
0: That's really interesting. It's funny that well, you and I have something in common because I actually, as an undergraduate, did a independent study on sleep for psychology where I had measured the sleep patterns of lab rats who were ingesting aspartame, seeing if it changed their brainwaves at all during sleep. Oh, yeah, okay. It didn't, but, you know, I got credit for it. But anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, negative results are, are still results. You still right. learn stuff. Yeah.
0: But I think that's really cool. Now, you began writing comics in college, and you were taking a genetics class at the time you and your friends were making jokes about some ideas you had. And tell me about those jokes that led to, well, basically your first book that you wrote.
1: Yeah, so uh, when I was in college, I've been reading comic books forever and, and I had a lot of friends who are also into comic books and we like to make up these wild ideas for different stories and one of the things that I always liked to do was when I learned something interesting in a class I would think to myself what's a funny or interesting story I could make out of that and I like you said I was in a genetics class and so I was learning about stem cells and, and how they're programmed and how they get assigned different roles in the body and things like that and then also how there's a very small amount of difference between stem cells, between species. And I was explaining this to one of my friends. His name is Michael Sweeney. I was explaining this to him and he was like, so you could, during the stem cell phase, put different animal parts potentially or programmed to be different animal parts. I had not thought about that at all. And I was like, yeah, I think you could. He's was like, so what you could like give a baby different animal parts. And I was like, like bear arms. Yeah, and then and then at that point, uh, my friend Amber walked in, who would who was uh, an art major at the time. We sort of rattled on and and had this idea for what eventually became Bear Arm Baby, and that was that was a, sort of a, all of our first little dip into the reality of making comic books, and we made up this whole story about how a doctor had to do prenatal surgery on this baby. He knocked over a shelf or something, and bear DNA had fallen in there. And at the same time, like some scalpels had fallen out of his pocket and then also a laser pointer in in some fashion. It was the most bizarre story. And then what eventually came out to be was their arm baby. You remember reading the, uh, the supermarket tabloids, the black and white ones, and they seemed like every other month they had a story about the Bat Boy. Mm hmm. Yeah. And so we sort of modeled his face off of the bat boy from those those supermarket tabloids. And he would walk around on his bare arms because those are much larger than his entire body altogether. And so he walks around on those and he's got razor scalpel claws and one of his eyes has been replaced by a laser pointer and it was a crazy little story. And I think it only lasted around ten Posts or so, but, but yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was sort of our first taste of comic creation
0: Well, I'm sure you've seen the commercial which I love my wife and I both love this commercial with, with the puppy monkey baby And now we know how they're made <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, That's exactly how they're made it uh, Yeah people the doctors need to quit leaving
1: DNA vials of different animals and stuff Next to the, next to the operating table
0: now I understand other classes led you to more story ideas Tell me about some of those ideas which saw future development and some that did not.
1: I think that was might have been the farthest any of them really made. I'm trying to remember some of the other good ones. A lot of them were really, truly terrible. Like we I was learning about the purpose of the cartilage rings in your trachea, in your throat. They keep it open because otherwise it's just a floppy tube. And so I was wondering what it'd be like if somebody didn't have those and they'd have to like swallow air. And so you'd have to like basically be eating air all the time and try and swallow them. One of them was a monkey, we called it we were learning, I think they might have been in the same genetics class, how chimpanzee DNA was only so much different than human DNA. And I was like, well, there are mutations in the womb that will cause mutations way more radical than this small percentage. And so what if there was a man who was supposed to be a monkey? So so monkeys had children and it came out a man due to this small percentage variation in the DNA or whatever, and his name would be humanzy. He's just a normal dude. He's a normal guy, but he was supposed to be a monkey. And again, a lot of them didn't really go anywhere, but those were some of the other ideas.
0: Well, I mean, how can you top Baby Bear Arm? You know, I mean... <laughs> yeah, Bear Arm bear Baby, he's truly uh, he's
1: really one in a million, that guy.
0: Now, we're going to discuss a couple of your horror comics today. You like horror, I like horror. I really enjoy horror stories because anything can happen to the central characters. There may not be a happy ending, but there's usually some kind of closure there are no guarantees the series is going to keep going on, and it doesn't need to. Often there's a message and a definite ending in mind. What drew you to doing horror books?
1: My love of horror goes back, I think, farther than I can even remember. My dad would always like to watch football on TV in the living room. To this day, I hear stories at family gatherings about how when I was four or five years old, Uh, I always wanted to watch Jaws. I mean, an argument can be made that that is absolutely inappropriate for a kid of that age to be watching. But nonetheless, uh, I was very interested in watching Jaws. And so almost every Sunday during the game, I would walk over to the VCR, push in our VHS copy of Jaws. And my dad would go, hey, what are you doing? And I'd just say, maybe later, Dad. And then we'd end up watching the entirety of Jaws instead of the football game. Thank my dad for being tolerant to that, I guess. After that, it just sort of grew into I just started watching more and more horror movies. It sort of just became a part of just the pop culture, I guess, roundtable that I really loved. And it doesn't take too long after you watch so many horror movies and read so many horror books and comic books that you kind of start to piece together your own. And it wasn't really until a few years ago that I decided to take my own stab at, no pun intended, taking my own stab at making a horror comic book. It was a really off chance, strange thing. Where I had just got done working the night shift for one of our sleep studies, it was, it was maybe three or four years ago, and I had been awake for roughly 30 hours because I had an appointment the next morning with my endocrinologist, who's basically my diabetes doctor. And so I, I was sleep deprived. I went in. He told me all this, all the updates about how my body's doing, things like that. On the drive home, your mind gets kind of delirious. I probably shouldn't have been driving, to be honest very, very tired, and I started thinking about this idea that the diabetes, if it were an actual monster, and just kind of follows me my entire life, and how that might play out. How would somebody go about living their life with a monster that's trying to kill them 24-7, and how would you fend that off, and just sort of how would you grow, how would you relate to other people about it, how would other people treat you in return, uh, and things like that. I was getting so worked up about it in my car, I jotted it down on a piece of paper, went and promptly slept for around... 10 or 12 hours and then woke up and started writing my first horror book, which ended up becoming Sweetheart.
0: Yeah. You know, I read that and I didn't know the background of it or the motivation for it. And at first I thought, well, you know, why not just shoot the creatures in the head or move (laughs) across the ocean, but it actually represents something else, something more personal for you. And that's, as you said, coping with type one diabetes. So with that understanding, The book took on a whole different meaning for me. What is some of your personal struggle with the disease? And how did the book ultimately provide some hope in the story? Would have been a one shot. You took it out further to five issues. How did that story change to more of hope towards the end?
1: That really was a whole process in and of itself. I had originally written the story. Again, it was supposed to be this one shot. I was really just trying to convey just how terrible it can be. Personally, I was diagnosed when I was five or six years old. I had this amazing mother and she taught me how to take care of myself. And she always taught me that I wasn't crazy different from everybody else and, and this whole thing. And so I grew up having it just be a part of my life. But all the same, I learned to make jokes about it and sort of learn not to take it too seriously. But at the same time, there's always that thought in the back of my head that people with diabetes statistically live much shorter lives because the diabetes leads to diabetic complications, heart disease, cardiovascular disease, uh, kidney failure, things like that. I was in this place where I really just wanted to put all of that anxiety and fear that I never really let bubble to the surface because I didn't know what kind of good it would do. And so I just tried to put it all into this one comic book. It's up for free on my website and I'm trying not to give too much away, but it doesn't have the happiest ending, that first issue. And so I made it and I felt good. It was very uh, a cathartic experience for me to put it all down on paper and, and create this book out of it. I went to San Diego Comic-Con and I was talking to some people about it over there and they were asking more questions and there are questions that I hadn't really thought a lot about. They thought about the same questions that you ask, like, why don't they leave? Why don't they do this? Or or what's going to happen with the daughter? And I instinctively answered all the questions. And as I was answering them off the top of my head, I was like, there's a lot more story here. Like, I can't just stop it that's ridiculous. So I got to explain these things, and I got to figure out what happens with Madison, who is the main character's daughter. The first book, as I said, was was sort of this projection of all the anxiety and fear that I had had about it, and then the rest of the series sort of becomes this slow burn flip of the coin, where it's it's a much more optimistic view, uh, while still sort of picking away at all the troubles and complications that can come with it. But in the end, sort of have this much smoother resolution that should. Hopefully make some people feel a little bit better about what can be done about the whole thing.
0: Now, the creatures in the book, they're very striking. They reminded me of the creature from the Black Lagoon, the aliens from signs, not just in their appearance because it's not exactly the same. But they reminded me of them just in terms of their reveal, how shocking it was and how they would just suddenly appear. Mm -hmm. And tell me about the team that worked on the book to provide the visuals.
1: The artist I approached about it, Francesco Ayakinta, who's an amazing, amazing artist. If you're doing horror, Francesco's kind of one of the guys you look for. And I had originally approached him with this idea. Uh, I had seen the work that he did in Croak, and that was sort of how I found him. I described him this idea that there were to be two versions of the monster because there are two different versions of diabetes, type 1 and type 2. Type 1s can be virtually any size. Type 2s, Generally, tend to be the result of some sort of lifestyle. The body type of people with type two tend to be a little bit larger than those with type one, and so I want those physical traits to represent each one. The type one monster to be very lanky. I had this idea of them having a hood on. I can't remember why. I was like, give them like a, a weird clothed hood to wear, make them very lanky, very creepy. And then the second one, I want them to not have any eyesight. I want them to be blindfolded, potentially, and have them be very, very large. And what would then become the type 1 monster would be called a stringer. It sounds very lanky. It sounds much thinner. The larger one becoming called the bruiser, again, because it sounds large, it sounds very brooding. And I gave this information over to Francesco, and what he gave back was so much better than What I had originally intended—I mean, the hood on the stringer didn't make a whole lot of sense—and so I'm glad that he removed it. He gave it this wispy hair, and so he looks like this old crone. They're both very, very tall and overbearing in a way, regardless of how fat or skinny the monsters are they're intimidating nonetheless. And so I thank Francesco, all the world for designing them the way that he did based on my original description.
0: That's brilliant. I really like the way you have the two different kinds of creatures representing the two different kinds of diabetes. That is just brilliant.
1: I don't want to say that like diabetics are this misrepresented or underrepresented minority of America or whatever, but there is seems to be, when you say that you're diabetic, one of the first reactions that I get is like, well, you're not fat. I was like, well, no, I'm not. Like even, even a lot of type 2s aren't like that, even though they tend to be a little larger. Like, not all diabetics are fat. Like, And so they, they don't quite know the difference or how the two differ from each other. And so that went also a lot into how the two different types of monsters operated in itself drove a lot of the book on how those two monsters interacted with the people in the town.
0: Now, you have something else in the works. Let's talk about your next story. It's through Alterna. It's through their anthology series, If... And the story is called The Seller Calls My Name. And that's coming out, I believe, November 21st in the fall. And this book, it's a black and white, on newsprint, annual anthology that comes out with over 100 creators in it, and past themes. Each year, there's a different theme for this annual anthology. They've done sci-fi, superpowers, crime. Next year is going to be hope. But this year, it's horror. Yeah. And publisher Peter Cimetti, the crime one, he funded through Kickstarter and had enough raised to also fund the release of this horror anthology series. So when did you answer the call for submissions? Because I know that's how Peter goes about getting individuals to contribute to his books. He reviews them all. When did you answer the call, and did you receive any actionable feedback from Peter? I
1: can't remember exactly how I found out. I think I had sort of missed the boat on the crime anthology. I had, at that point, just started learning about Alterna. I just sort of started reading their books sort of meeting some of their creators and stuff like that. And so by that time, Alterna had already produced the book or had already finished the Kickstarter for it. It might have been just on Twitter or on their website, I think, because I originally submitted sweetheart to Alterna. And while I was there, I also saw submissions for the horror anthology and I read it. This sounds perfect. I absolutely want to do this. He didn't provide a whole, a whole lot of feedback. No. So I I had originally sent in the book. When you send in the book to him or the the story to him, it comes with a little brief, I think you're allowed two or three sentences to describe the story. Um, And I sent it in. He saw, he said it would be an amazing fit for the anthology. Um, he had only suggested some textual additions, so I think he originally wanted me to add a caption at the beginning to state where or when the event was taking place, which made a lot of sense. I had some other people read the story prior to submission, and I think they had given some vague feedback that was similar, but I'd never really picked up on how to address it. And so we ended up adding some text that said that they were at Billy's father's funeral at the beginning, which kind of sets the whole
0: premise for it. Now, I think all of us at one time or another have been afraid to go to the basement. I mean, it's dark (laughs) (laughs) In older houses. There's only one way out. It's the way you came in. Who's watching your back? Is there something in the shadows? What was that sound? Tell me the genesis of the story. What did you experience in real life or through fiction? that went to that dark, dank place?
1: Two very specific things, and then a third that was sort of tangentially influential towards the story. The first was I had listened to this tape when I was a kid. I remember not too long ago I looked up what the tape was called, and now I can't remember what it was, but it was a cassette tape that we used to listen to at my house when I was a kid, and it was just horror stories. And they were supposed to be for kids, but they were objectively terrifying. And one of the stories was called The Blood in the Basement or The Blood Somewhere. And it was about this sentient puddle of blood that this kid discovers in the basement. And it ends up stalking him up the stairs. And I remember very vaguely this slow, creeping description of how the blood was creeping its way up the stairs to this kid's room. The kid being completely unaware that the, the blood had ever even managed to make it out of the basement. And I really want to listen to the rest of the story, but I can't find it in its entirety anywhere because all I have are these memories of it that affected me in a way, but I can't remember the specifics of it. And then the other one was my cousins used to live next door to me when I was a kid and they had a pump house, but the pump house was uh, sort of underground. And so it was this little, this creepy looking brown shed uh, and you opened it up and there's this wooden set of stairs that go down into the pump house where the you know the water pump is and they have stereotypically creepy stairs that have no backing on them and so they're just like basically the wooden skeleton of a set of real stairs and so as you're walking down it you get the feeling uh, or the fear that I feel like a lot of people have had of something could potentially be under those stairs and potentially grab you from under those stairs which is always terrifying and so you know, you get a lot of cardio and sprinting up and down those stairs. So I read the call for the horror anthology. And then I had sort of brainstormed a little bit, try to think of this story. And then I recalled those two memories and thought I could sort of use this to fuel this story. The sort of tangential part of it as well was one of my best friends lived in a sort of a, for lack of a better term, kind of a broken home. And he had a stepfather who was not the kindest man. I spent a great deal of time at his house. And so I would either witness these things or experience these things. And then not a lot of people seem to understand it. And so when these things happen and you're a child, the child either doesn't want to express it or they have a fear of expressing it for further consequences. And then the people around it may know that it's happening, but can sort of be in denial about it. And so that's sort of a terrifying thing that relates to a lot of other horror movies where the kid sees a monster under the bed, tells their parents, and they don't believe him because, oh, you're just a kid, and whatnot. And so I, I kind of wanted to blend those two together a little bit into a story that end up becoming the
0: seller cosmic name. Now, you have two creators on the book sharing credit for telling the story, the Siba, Lizana, and Doko, both from Chile.
1: That's right, yeah. I met Christian Dokolomansky, I believe, is how you say his last name. I met him through Siba, and Siba, I had actually met... Through DeviantArt, I had met him some years prior because I had written a different short story that I had no intentions of publishing anywhere or submitting anywhere. That was called She Counts as Cargo. I originally tapped him to draw that story, and he did an, a phenomenal job. Seba is one of the best artists I've ever worked with in my entire life. He's an incredible masterwork himself. I had reached back out to him and said, Hey, we did this story together and I think that you would do a great job with this story. He also draws a lot of other horror stories. I thought he would be perfect. He draws a lot of zombies. A lot of his books have dead characters or or rotting flesh and things like that. And he's very good at texturing those things. And I that's something that I wanted to utilize for the book. And so I reached out to him. He drew it and then I thought the most appropriate course of action at that point would then to be to reach out to Christian to letter it, being as good as he is, and then uh, it all came together pretty well for that.
0: I guess we'll see the solicitation for your story in the anthology probably in a couple of months in September because it's coming out in November.
1: That's correct. Yeah, I think I've got an announcement posted for I think it's pinned to my Twitter right now. But other than that, there should be more solicitations coming out.
0: And your other story, sweetheart, do you think Alterna will at some point adopt that and then publish it as well. I had
1: spoken with Peter at great length. He actually gave a lot of feedback for that book and sort of helped me turn it into what it is and sort of bring it up to the quality that it is. But in the end, Peter had decided to pass on the book. He didn't think it was the best fit for the time and and didn't think it was really the greatest thing for Alternative to jump on at the time. And so he ultimately passed, but we do still have a couple of submissions in the process that hopefully we're going to hear back from in the near
0: future and how can folks get a copy of sweetheart
1: uh so sweetheart first issue is on my website dylandoescomics.com d-i-l-l-o-n doescomics.com and you can find the first issue there and the second issue has just finished being inked and so right now marco pagnotta is the colorist for it and so he's working on the colors currently which will eventually be lettered. Before we started this interview, I was setting up, doing some setup for my Kickstarter video. I'm going to try and put together a Kickstarter for that to try and fund the colors, the letters, and then hopefully cut into some of the printing costs for it as well. And so whenever that's done, I'll start putting posts for the Kickstarter when it's available.
0: I see. So you have the five issues written out. Now you just have to get them drawn, lettered. Absolutely. I finished
1: writing the entire series several months ago. And so, yeah, at this point, it's just a process of getting things funded. And making comics is not the cheapest thing in the world. And so I, I'm starting to now have to uh, reach out to different ways for funding the venture.
0: Okay. Yeah, I find your process for writing also interesting because for you, nothing is too precious. You're not holding things too tightly. Tell me about how you go about producing good work. What's your method? You know, how you go about creating your ideas and and going through them and deciding what's good and what's not?
1: What I like to say when I start writing is that I just start writing, and then what comes out at the beginning is terrible. I write the garbage until something of value appears, and then I discard the garbage and run with the goods. What will happen is I can't really explain how it comes about, but there are times where you just hear something, you see something you're like, oh, that, that's interesting. Like, I wonder wonder what that would look like if this happened or if that happened. And then I just kind of start writing it out. And generally, it's sort of in the middle of the series. Like, I'll just have a scene in my head and I'll write out that scene. And then I'll think, how did we get to this point and where are we going from this point? And then so I sort of start in that middle. And then I just build around it to create sort of a structure that can stand on its own.
0: Okay, I see. So you have the germ of the idea and then you work around that, wherever it is in the story. Right, exactly. That's right. All right. Before we get to my fun questions that I ask all my guests, I have a few other questions just for you. All right. Feels better. <laughs> I saw a picture of you in a uh, Scooby-Doo mystery machine. Oh, and yeah. You do resemble Shaggy quite a bit. Were you a fan of Scooby-Doo? Uh,
1: yeah. So I that actually might have been the birth of my interest in comic books. Was we had a VHS tape of Scooby-Doo meets Batman, and oh, yeah. uh, I watched that thing until it <laughs> until it wore itself out. And then I went on to I think it was Scooby-Doo meets the Flintstones, and they went to Count Rockula's castle, I believe he was called, because it was. You know, it's Flintstones, and so it's rock themed. Yeah, there was one where they had like a drag race. So they had to do a drag race with all of Dracula's monsters and Frankenstein and and the Wolfman stuff. And so I I watched that one a lot as well.
0: I remember those too. Actually, my earliest memory of it, and I don't remember actually watching it, but I remember my grandmother saying to me, You know what tomorrow is? Scooby Doo's on. And this was when it first went on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's how long ago. That... But I do remember the ones when they came out. I think it was like around 72 or so when they had all the guest stars. Like you said, Batman and Robin. They had Jonathan Winters, Don Knotts, Sonny and Cher. Oh, yeah. They might have had the Three studios. I'm trying to remember. But they had like all kinds of guest stars. And uh, Jerry Reed. It was They were great.
1: That was how you knew you made it back in the days if you appeared on Scooby-Doo. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's right. Everybody wanted to be on Scooby-Doo. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I also understand – One of your favorite books is H.G. Wells' Time Machine. Have you ever seen the Time Machine movie? It's the one that George Powell directed with Rod Taylor from 1960, I think it was? Yeah, I I have seen that one. Yeah, yeah.
1: I remember watching it as a child and then in my underdeveloped child brain, not being super interested in it because it was black and white.
0: Maybe we're thinking of a different one because the one that I saw was in full color, and I'm pretty sure it was 1960.
1: I'm not sure I've seen that one
0: then, no. Oh, man, that one's great. It actually won an Oscar for the time-lapse photography, like how time would pass as he was in the time machine. And you may have seen pictures of this on the internet somewhere. The Morlocks... So I yeah. do, they're blue, and they're hairy, and they have fangs, and their eyes glow.
1: Yeah, I have. I've absolutely seen images of those. Yeah, I can't believe – I cannot believe you are revealing a very large blind spot in my favorite <laughs> book of all time, and I can't <laughs> believe it's happening on the internet right now. It is. I, I do recall yeah, the uh, images of those of those Morlocks, yeah.
0: Oh, it's a great movie. It really is. I mean the, the photography is great. Uh, yeah, like I said, it's full color, and it's just – it's one of my favorites every time that comes on. I have to watch it. I just kind of get sucked into it because those Morlocks are just, they left this indelible impression upon my mind and the way they show time passing and it's really well done. If you haven't seen the whole thing, it's probably on YouTube, but they show it on television quite a bit. You'll probably get a chance to catch that. Since you really like the book, I think you'd love this adaptation.
1: Absolutely, yes. I was more... Into just the book. And then I saw the movies, one of the newer movies that came out, and I wasn't into it at all. I don't want to tear the movie down, but I was a little turned off by it. And so I just sort of stuck with the book and reread the book five or six more times. It's one of the original time travel stories. And I remember reading it for the first time and thinking about how absolutely brilliant it was in the beginning when he's describing time travel to his other buddies in his study. He's describing to them why time travel is possible, and he describes it in the same way that you would describe any other force of nature, and that you just have to find the opposing force to push back on it. And so, if you want to defy gravity, like you just have to have the leg power to jump. You know, if you want to make things warmer, you just have to find something to speed up those atoms and, and cause the heat to rise. And it's the same thing with time. It's a force of nature, just like anything else. You just have to find something to either negate or directly oppose that force to make it go in the opposite direction or to further its process into a faster manner or whatever. I was reading it in class when I was in school, and I just remember setting it down and just staring at it for a minute. And was like, this might be the greatest piece of literature ever written. This is so brilliant. His description of it isn't crazy detailed, but the, what he gets across is, is so good. I love it so much.
0: And it's really important to go back to that source material and read it. Was it... H.G. Wells also did The Invisible Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read the book first, actually, before I saw the movie, you know, the old black and white movie. But I really love that book, too, because it gets into so much more detail. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a great book to check out. And uh, check out the movie and, you know, let me know what you think. I think you're going to get a real kick out of that. I absolutely will. I
1: have a notepad next to me, and I'm actually writing it down to remind myself to go find that movie here.
0: Yeah, it's fairly faithful to it. Actually, there's even a, um, I have this comic. It's a Marvel comic. I'm pretty sure it's like 76 or so. And it was Marvel, I think it's called Classics, basically a graphic novel, but it's a 50 cent comic adaptation of H.G. Wells' Time Machine. I think they also did, yeah, War of the Worlds they did also. So those are some pretty cool books too if you're into uh, scouring for back issues and you're an H.G. Wells fan. I have this image in my
1: mind of, it's yeah, it's Marvel, classic comics, and there's a picture of him in a time machine. I remember it being kind of metallic-y looking. It looked like he was kind of out in space or or something. I can see the cover of it in my mind, but I can't remember the inside of it at all. I think I've seen it in one of my friends' house because I think he probably had it somewhere in there.
0: Yeah, that was a pretty good series. And they even had like really good creative teams on them. I can't off the top of my head spit them out, but I do know that they were very well done. So um, anything that's faithful to the original source material, the book or the novel, I really appreciate the creators taking the time to get it right. Definitely. Yeah.
1: Source materials, I mean, it is very important. I understand when people get upset when source material is changed, not changed, but when people deviate from the source material, it's so interesting because people get in such a fuss about when the source material is neglected or is disregarded and changes are made and it's bad. Right. Nobody liked that Galactus was a cloud in the Fantastic Four Mm -hmm. movie. And people point to the fact that they deviated from the source material as the reason why it's bad. But then if you watch something like 1989 Batman, the Joker is killing Bruce Wayne's parents. Spoiler alert for 1989 (laughs) Batman. Um, But, uh, yeah, the Joker kills his parents. And there's so many things that are just so different from the source material, but it's universally loved. Like people love it. People are okay with deviations seemingly as long as it's still a good movie. It's a really strange thing to me whenever I see it happen. It's very
0: weird. You know, there's plenty of room to do new stories that won't take away from the source material, won't won't upset anybody who's a purist about it. Like um well, we're talking H.G. Wells. Another film based on The Time Machine was Time After Time, which came out around 79, and that was Malcolm McDowell who played H.G. Wells. And he was in Clockwork Orange. Yeah, no, yeah. Malcolm McDowell's, yeah, he's great. He's fantastic. And he goes to the future of 1979 to chase Jack the Ripper. I enjoyed it. I never had a chance to watch it all the way through, and uh, I finally did. So if you like a take on the H.G. Wells, he is very much H.G. Wells when he comes to the future. He still is in that mode of a man out of time trying to stop this killer. So Malcolm
1: McDowell played H.G. Wells, and H.G. Wells went to hunt down Jack the Ripper himself? Yes. Wow.
0: Well, all right. Jack the Ripper, I believe, if I recall right, he used his time machine to escape. He went after him into the future gotcha. to try to stop him. So it's a, it's, it's a good movie. It's a pretty good movie. And, you, and you know, it's a great actors, too, so it's worth checking out. I'm just tossing out recommendations here. Since you like H.G. Wells, why not?
1: I've got pen and paper here for a reason. <laughs> now we have got stuff to put in it. So.
0: Now? my fun questions that ask all my guests. And you've heard the show, so you probably uh, are prepared, ready to go.
1: I was familiar with the original set and then I think you changed them at some point. I believe I I listened to a recent episode and there were some in there that I didn't recognize and I tried not to think too hard about them so so that I could give better answers or give uh, genuine off-the-cuff answers.
0: Yeah, I added some more in there because everyone likes to hear them, they're fun. So the first one's easy. What do you like to do for rest and relaxation?
1: So for rest and relaxation, I usually sleep. Being a sleep researcher, it's ironic that we get the worst sleep. And so I try and get as much of it whenever possible. But when I'm actually out doing things, I've taken up snorkeling because I live in San Diego now and I've got these awesome beaches and I have to utilize them. And, and when I lived in Oregon, what I would love to do is, is go out into the woods. In most parts, especially in Southern Oregon, you're never more than you know a quick five-minute walk away from solitude out in the woods. And it's this very peaceful experience. And It's very, very nice. And in San Diego, it's very, very different. There's so many people here. But when you go snorkeling, even if there's a bunch of people in the water, you can still submerge yourself in the water and see these beautiful things. And it's very quiet and still very peaceful and still a great experience. And so I usually do that to sort of recenter myself, if you will.
0: Yeah, excellent. Very good. Now, thinking back to a birthday that stands out in your mind, what was special about it? What was memorable about it?
1: When I turned 20, I was in college, and I remember sitting outside. I, it was my birthday, and like everybody, we had this little small celebration for it. And then at some point when everybody was sort of doing their own thing and interacting with each other, I just sort of slipped out and sort of sat down outside of the building, just kind of have this reflective moment. I was being melodramatic because I was still getting essentially. And so I was kind of sitting outside, and I was like, I'm not a teenager anymore. I got to start taking things more seriously because at the time I I just kind of been going with the flow as far as my studies went. I knew that I was doing a health PE major, but I never knew what I wanted to do with it. I, just, I was like, oh yeah, this is just what I'm doing at this moment. I don't need to think any further than that. And so it was that moment that I really started doing a more forward shift into forward thinking about where things were going and how I need to start planning things out. And so I remember that being sort of a kind of a shift in how I thought about my future.
0: No, I follow you. I had that kind of moment myself. I remember it very distinctly. It was in high school, and I just went for a walk uh, before a after-school party. It was kind of in between school and the party, and I was just walking down by the park. Uh, and I was like 15 years old, and I was just kind of taking stock of everything I've done and where I am at that point, it was kind of like a check, you know, like, where am I going? Where am I headed? Okay. I got this stuff figured out. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. At the time, yeah, you know, right. like, okay, yeah. okay. Absolutely. I know who, I know who I am now. I know where I'm going. I got all this figured out. Of course, everything gets tossed up in the air. <laughs> Correct. Right, right. yeah. But yeah, I, I, that's, I know those things stick out in your head. I think we probably all have had those moments. When I was in
1: high school too, we used to joke before I turned 18, I was, I was 17 and one of my best friends at the time, we used to joke as all the older folks would say, oh, when I was a kid, I thought I knew everything. Or when you're a kid, you think you know everything. And so we'd make jokes like, all right, when we turn 18, we know everything. And so we got to make use of it. Um, but then after we turn 18, like we got to figure out what we're doing because we're going to lose it all. <laughs>
0: <Right>. <laughs> now, still thinking back high school, maybe a little before that, what kind of pictures or posters did you have? on your bedroom wall and what kind of music were you listening to, what was in heavy rotation for you?
1: When I was young, I had a poster of the Green Power Ranger on my wall and it was the coolest thing that I'd ever seen. (laughs) I had it up on my wall, It it was probably the only poster I had because I was so into Power Rangers when I was so young. I didn't really have any music. I remember listening to to this cassette called Cheech the School Bus Driver when I was that young. It was Cheech Martin, and he did a children's cassette where he would sing, I am Cheech, my name is Cheech, and I am the School Bus Driver. It was this whole thing. And then I think it wasn't until I was probably 14 or 13 or 14, the first CD that I ever got was Tub Thumping, was the Chumbawamba CD with tub thumping on it and thinking like this is it like now i'm a cool kid now like i've got a cd i know this band and now i can talk about it with people and i can be one of the cool kids and then tub thumping was the only thing they ever did and then it was it all sort of went down.
0: that was it yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. i actually had the cd
1: (laughs) yeah it was was, i can i remember the the cover for it and everything it was it was a great cd to play that one track on for Mm -hmm. sure (laughs)
0: That's what everybody discovered. (laughs) That was it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Now this one's a little more difficult. Maybe not for you, after what we've discussed about HG Wells. You're stuck on a deserted island. You only have one book with you, and this is for fun, for pleasure. This isn't a survival guide. So what would that one book be? I
1: remember hearing you ask this question to somebody else, and the survival books are banned, but I I can see right now (laughs) on my bookshelf I have I have Tom Brown's Field guide to wilderness survival, and every time I think about that, I was like, I would absolutely bring it. <laughs> but since I since I can't bring it, uh, I think the book that I would probably bring is a book called Voodoo Heart by Scott Snyder. It was I think it was his first published book, and it's just a series of short stories. It doesn't really have a message. There's nothing really. Uh, I guess, crazy profound about it, but they're all just so well written and it's very easy to get lost each setting that he presents in such a short amount of time that I guess if I'm bringing it for fun on a deserted island, it'd be good to have this uh, wide selection of different scenarios or worlds to be put in that I can sort of get lost in and forget that I'm going to die on this island. Okay.
0: Well well hopefully not. Hopefully you've memorized the survival guide. But yeah, you, yeah. you do want yeah. something that's what I'm always trying to get at is what is the book that would bring you pleasure, that would help you to escape, to you know, give you something to read over and over again that you can just enjoy that has a lot of variety. And that's that perfect example right there. Now if a toy company said, We're gonna make an action figure of you, what should be your accessory? What would you wanna have? along with your action figure? I think
1: my action figure accessory would be my insulin pump. It'll double as a walkie-talkie or a army knife or something like that. But Dylan Gilbertson with Kung Fu Grip and insulin pump included.
0: Okay. Yeah. I like that multi-purpose
1: device too, man. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, these, these things, I mean, if you broke one out or something, or if you jailbroke one or something, I bet you could put all sorts of cool stuff.
0: <laughs> now, when you're resting and relaxing... What's your beverage of choice? I want to say
1: something that's not an alcoholic drink, but it's just so easy to pick one for alcohol, for alcoholic drinks. My girlfriend and I are really into this uh, this Pacific Wonderland beer. It's from Deschutes Brewery up in Oregon. I'm, I'm originally from Oregon, and she's originally from Boston, Massachusetts. Her favorite beers are always something that's out of Massachusetts, and, and mine are always from somewhere from up in Oregon. And so we found this one called Pacific Wonderland from Oregon. And I finally got a victory in that she really loves it too. And so now I just – every time we're going to go buy something to drink or if we're going to have a beer, I was like, love it because it's better than
0: Boston beer. <laughs> Is that a lager, Pilsner IPA? It's a lager. Okay.
1: It's not – crazy crazy light it's light enough that you can drink it enjoy it on the hot days in san diego it's not crazy hoppy or anything and it kind of just hits the sweet spots of all the extremes that you get because in san diego you get so many you have so many ipas that just action pack it with hops and stuff and it gets a little overwhelming at times and so it's nice to have this one that just sort of knows where it's at and can kind of deal with the fact that it's not the hoppiest thing it's not the most alcoholic thing in the world and it's just a nice enjoyable beer
0: that's good to know i'll make a note of that because the missus likes beers like that i usually get the stronger ipas and she just kind of turns her nose up and i say try this and she goes Ugh. <laughs> yeah. so but the lagers you know she likes those and the pills so i'll keep that in mind i'll have to see if they have it in our area because sometimes we do get at our local distributor we get lots of beers from around the country and uh, some of the smaller microbrews, so I'll keep an eye open for that one.
1: Yeah, the shoes kind of gets pushed around, I think, enough that you might be able to find it out there somewhere.
0: Awesome, or I'll have to go out there just to have a beer.
1: <laughs> yeah, right.
0: Yeah, it's <laughs> a good excuse to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Final question: What is the question that an interviewer has never asked you? Something you want people to know about you that they just don't know?
1: And not necessarily something that I, I guess, I, that I want people to know about, but something that. I have an interest in that people don't discuss enough, I think, I mean, at least for me, because I always want to talk about it, is lock picking. It was sort of something that I had gotten into when I was in high school, when I was bored. It's such a fun puzzle to solve. And it's not for, not for criminal purposes, like I'm not going to go break into houses or break into stores or what have you. But it's very fun because every lock is different. And so you have to know exactly where the pins are. You have to know how lightly to push them and how hard to turn it while you're pushing them. And It's basically a, a Rubik's Cube, but it's it's a Rubik's Cube that has different solutions every time. And so it's a lot of fun. And so I, I guess <laughs> anything about locks.
0: Well, it's good to know that shoes you use your power for good, not evil.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh.
0: I used it one
1: time for a purpose like that. It wasn't malicious in any way, but there was a a stretch of road next to my college. This is public knowledge at this point, so we're not divulging any criminal secrets or whatever. But there was a, a small stretch of road next to my college town in Ashland, Oregon, where there'd been no construction there for months. The construction had been over with forever, but there was still one of those LED road signs. And it would always flash road work ahead, but there never was. And everybody was annoyed with it. And so instead, I went out there and I, I opened, I picked the lock to it to open it up. <laughs> and, I, and I changed it to have the fatality codes for the original Mortal Kombat game. <laughs> and then, and then I, I remember thinking I was the cleverest kid in the world. And I, I took pictures of it. And then I made a little album of it and called them uh, Traffic Fatalities. <laughs> it's, it's <great. laughs> I still feel okay about that one That's something that seems to have aged well As far as my perception of it I still I still enjoy it
0: <laughs> Awesome All right. Well, I will keep my eyes open For when the Kickstarter begins for Sweetheart And of course, the anthology If, when your story comes out The seller calls my name Dylan, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks Okay, don't go away, folks. There's more of the interview with Dylan Gilbertson right after the closing music of the show. Coming up next week, Evan Dorkin, the creator of Milk and Cheese, he has Beasts of Burden, Wise Dogs, and Eldritch Men coming out August 22nd with artist Benjamin Dewey being published through Dark Horse Comics and Blackwood Number 3 coming out July 25th with art by Veronica Fish. And most recently on July 18th, he had Dork, a 270-page black-and-white hardcover collection released on July 18th. I considered releasing two podcasts this week, but given the length of the conversation with Evan, I decided just to release this one with Dylan today, and we'll focus on Evan Dorkin's great conversation next Thursday. For updates about guests coming up, you can check out my website, creatortalks.com. That's creatortalks.com. And also follow me on Twitter, at creatortalkspod. That's at creatortalkspod. That's where I spend most of my time on Twitter. I also have a Facebook page, at creatortalkspod as well. You can also find me on Instagram where I post my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age comics from my personal collection. And if there's a story behind the purchase of that book or a connection to my guest that week, I will include that information as well. The podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and on Amazon Dot and Echo devices. Just say Alexa, play podcast Creator Talks. And if you prefer to listen to your audio through YouTube, Creator Talks is also there as well. Please subscribe to the podcast through your favorite app and rate and review on iTunes. It goes a long way to helping this show stand out from the pack of other podcasts. And I don't mean that in a negative way. Not at all. There are some great guests on the show, and I think everyone should hear what they have to say who likes to read comics. So please do what you can. All right then, as promised, the continuation of my conversation with Dylan Gilbertson about the inspiration behind his book, Sweetheart, and the Kickstarter for the second issue is now active, so please check that out. Thank you so much for joining me. Enjoy your comics this week and be good to one another. Until next time. diabetes thing is, um, I mean, I'm familiar with it because in my family, the type 2 is a problem. It's really important to me to manage my health because of how difficult it is. And it's one of the things that, you know, I have some control over. There's some things I can do, you know, even if I have a genetic predisposition. So, like, when we're eating stuff and I'm like – or I go out to shop for stuff, I read everything everything as far as sugar content like how many grams
1: that's great that's the way to do it for sure
0: i didn't really have a handle on that and they're like well men should have no more than like 35 some grams i'm like you know how easy it is to blow that out of the water if you don't realize what you're having that's yeah. really easy to have triple quadruple times that easily
1: oh yeah you go to some restaurants and they'll have that in their pasta like you go oh, yeah. you get everything's got loads of sugar and it. it's terrible
0: like I like to eat like protein bars for lunch to kind of keep the weight down and kind of you know because I feel better when I control my blood sugar you know I can just kind of feel a little more energetic, and some of those bars it's like twenty five grams and I'm like well that's almost the whole day, <laughs> I mean it's you got to really read. Problem
1: is too like with like cliff bars and stuff you don't understand like cliff bars are made for people who are being extremely active people who are rock climbing or they're hiking or they're doing things that are very physically active and they need they need that that sugar carb protein sort of combination to refuel themselves and if you're just at work and you're eating it then you're I mean you don't need most of the stuff that's in there and it's excessive
0: yeah it's I wish more people were aware of it and realize how much they have to pay attention you just can't go based on what some marketing material says in the label, like, hey, it's high fiber. Well, yeah, but what else? What else is in it? Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah.
1: And what, yeah. And then people will see the boxes of cereal. Cereals is difficult because you see things like raisin bran and, and all these things that are supposed to be a lot more healthy, and granola and all this stuff. And then you look at the box, and the second ingredient is sugar.
0: Who eats a cup? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, never, I used to chow down on cereal until I started reading the sugar content and I was like, oh my god, I'm, yeah. I'm eating this stuff like a horse and you know, yeah. there's a lot of sugar in there it's and, so much and, and in and portion sizes, no one in this country you know, eats like the portion that's on a, a label not, oh, not no. in this country
1: no, 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 absolutely not there's a weird thing too that happens there's this uh, this culture that kids used to get in trouble because they didn't finish their plate Mm -hmm. The kids in Africa or in China or wherever are starving, and so you got to finish your plate. You get in trouble if you don't finish all of what's on your plate. But then the portion sizes in America are so huge— and then we have this big problem that everyone's like, oh, you got to eat more healthy, but you better finish what's on your plate. I don't really
0: know how to feel this right now.
1: And so it's just a weird thing to raise kids now to finish their plate, start giving them less if that's going to be the problem.
0: Yeah, we do not uh, enforce that clean plate as long as they have enough. It's like, OK, well, at least eat some more of your vegetables. You know, we just want to yeah. make sure that some and if you want something later. There's apples over there, there's bananas, you know, and we, we have like the low sugar like Gatorade for during the summertime, but we allow them to step away. But just yeah. keep in mind, you're not going to load up with high sugar stuff, you know, even though my kids have the crazy metabolism where they're burning and growing. And we still, you know, you set that early, what your body likes, you know, as far as what, what your habits become. So you want yeah. to definitely jump on that early and have some awareness.
1: That was the thing too, because I, like I said, I was diagnosed when I was five or six, mm. and then growing up, if I had soda, it was always a diet soda. There's some things to be said whether or not diet soda is actually any better for you than, than regular soda, but all the same, it sets your taste buds for what you expect and what you like. And so, when I, growing up, everyone if I had if I tasted a regular Coke, I was like, "This is gross!" Like, why are you drinking this? This is disgusting. And then I whip out a Diet Coke, and everyone would would sort of cover their mouth. <laughs> oh, Gross! What are you doing? <laughs>
0: I I have the same experience now. Like I only drink diet soda, which I know isn't the greatest thing in the world for you. But when I do have soda, that's what I have. And I'm the same way. If I have regular soda, which I almost never do, but if I ever have a taste of it, it's gross to me because it is just so sweet. It's overpowering. I'm just not used to it.
1: Yeah, definitely. It
0: probably will make me sick.
1: (laughs) Thank you, guys.